Looking for more professional learning, free as a benefit of your union membership? OEA's upcoming quarter catalog is available now at grow.oregoned.org. You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members, for members. In Season 9, it's Back to School with host Malik White. Hello, welcome back to Season 9 of OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. My name is Malik White, and I'm the host for this year's back-to-school season of the podcast. Today, we are excited to be talking with Gregory Duncan from the Eugene 4J School District, and we'll be unpacking the BIPOC Educator Survival Guide. To get things started for today, Gregory, can you tell the people a little bit about your background and what made you decide to pursue the education profession 20 years ago? Oh, well, yeah, I've been teaching now for 20 years. Um, I'm from industry. I'm a CTE teacher. I'm a culinary arts instructor, and that's what I've been doing for 20 years. Um, I have a background in uh, organizing, actually, um, and in culinary arts. Uh, yeah, I always had a passion for connecting with people, uh, teaching, trying to make change, trying to just grow people's mindsets, really. I think the word teaching sometimes, you know, is complicated. But for me, I'm just trying to grow people's mindsets um, and just expand thinking. Uh, yeah, my I was kind of working in industry. I didn't really feel super fulfilled in life. And then a position uh, at South Eugene High School opened up. I applied, interviewed, hired, and that is where I've been at for the last 20 years of my life. I'm Man, also yeah. the BSU coordinator and a lot of other hats, but uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love hearing about that, especially the growing mindsets part. Uh, real quick, can you tell us a little bit about, about BSU and what the acronym means? I know in yeah. education, all it is acronyms. But that might you're be right. You're right. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, yeah, the BSU stands for the Black Student Union. I mean, I was kind of asked slash told that I would be the advisor when I was hired. And I know that a lot of since I'm talking to a lot of BIPOC educators, I know that those uh, what voluntold, you get voluntold that you're going to be the affinity uh, coordinator or advisor or leader or teacher or whatever it is. Um, so, um, like any young green BIPOC educator, jumped all the way in uh, with my heart and my feet uh, uh, into the BS, into the Black Student Union. Um, what they are is different at each campus, uh, but really it's a space to promote African American positivity images, just spread Black excellence. Yeah, we still want to do work around combating racism but like we also just kind of want to celebrate black culture and the black experience so and i you know if everyone's listening to this you know you don't have to be black to be in the bs you the name tells you what we're going to be talking about who we're going to be focusing on 
Because if we just talk talking about race in general, then those conversations can get co-opted very easily and be about something else. So we're going to be talking specifically, illicitly about the African-American experience um, in the BSU. All students are welcome to come to it. But yeah, the majority of our membership is black. Hey, man, that's that's amazing to hear. And uh, to all those Springfield students listening in, uh, go join the BSU. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so Gregory, first of all, thank you for being here with us. Uh, one of my first questions I'd like to ask you today is what recommendations do you have for those early BIPOC educators out there who dream to make it 20 years? Uh, <laughs> um, I think the thing that I would recommend first is that make sure that you're good with your community, I would say, outside of school. I mean, education has high burnout in general. Um, But for me, being in those spaces, those mostly white spaces, those white power spaces is really the spaces that we're in. um, It's heavy. It's heavy. It's suffocating. And... um, on those bad days and those days where just you need someone to talk to, you need to have someone to talk to. And you need to have someone that gets you and gets what you're going through. It can't be someone that you have to re-explain what it is, what it feels like to be a person of color. Like you got to have someone who validates and supports, you know, um, you. And for me, that's been the secret of me being able to stay in this profession because there's, yeah, I have tons of friends. You know, BIPOC folks are like, man, how do you do it? How do you stay in that? You know, like, how do you, you know, I find, I find the kids, you know, that, that need it, you know, I give them the most, everybody else gets some too. Um, and, you know, I have a great network outside of education. I finally, over the last couple of years, actually started to make friends with some other teachers and educators. Um, but yeah, I got to go back into my community. Um, yeah, man, do your, like, you know, go to your hair salon, go to your barbershop, go to your, your restaurant. I mean, go to where the people know you and you know them and they know what's going on with you. Um, we just lost a wonderful uh, young BIPOC educator uh, this year. Um, and I thought that was the thing that they were lacking. And like, nobody knows it. You don't know what you need. You don't know if you starving and ain't never been around food. You don't know that like, Oh, I can eat. That'll fill me up. Like you just starving, you you know, you scavenging looking for stuff. So I think for me, the most important thing for just, you know, getting through it um, as the least unscathed that you can is to make sure that you have people in your life that validate you when you need to come home and, and, and talk about what's really going on with you at work, you know? Because if yeah, you come home and be like, man, these white people at my school are tripping. And the person you're talking to is like, what do you mean, Gregory? Can you explain that more? Then like, you know, you just, <laughs> you're, you're going you're gonna to lose it. You're going to absolutely lose it on them. And that's not healthy. Um, so, yeah, you know, you just, you need folks around you that think like you. And oh, if, yeah. you if you're blessed enough to have those in your building, in your district, um, blessings. Um to you so love them validate them make sure you meet like in the sitcoms on sunday for poker in the garage or you go have a nice lunch on saturday but just make sure that because it's easy to isolate because we're so emotionally drained um from just our job of just all the socializing we have to do in our jobs we're emotionally drained but i tell you that there's value and getting it back out that house and meeting up with your folks 
That's that's that's, that's what's going to get you through it. No, yeah, and you know, of course, I still have a lot more years to make it down the road to get to your level, but that is something I would say. Um, whenever you're feeling unmotivated or feel drained or just feel like you can't breathe because there's so much whiteness, definitely go com- connect with your people, y'all, to all the listeners out there. And don't, you know, don't overthink these things. It could be as simple as talking on the phone. Yeah. And that phone conversation feels good sometimes. You think it's going to be five minutes, but it'd be two hours sometimes. <laughs> right. No, seriously. Well, and, 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 you know, I think we can both relate on this. It's that power of not having to explain yes. the details in between the lines because unfortunately it's it's an experience that we deal with living in Oregon. It doesn't matter whether you know you're in the valley, southern Oregon or eastern Oregon or even in the metro area. My experience tells me that you know having to talk in between the lines that's that's work. <laughs> that's that doesn't work. Why are you making me work right now? <laughs> well then that's almost the teaching part and that, you know yeah. <laughs> true that I, um, before I get us too distracted, yeah. Uh, right now, it sounds like we're talking a little bit about uh, BIPOC educator burnout, and no. my question for you is suggestions that you have for those educators who might be feeling burnt out or wondering, questioning them themselves if they made the right choice. I mean, if you're in education, hopefully you're in education because you love the youth. You know, I think that's primary first front and center, you know, so if you love the youth, you know, and, you know, you love students, you know, then you didn't make the wrong choice. You're in the right place. And probably uh, you got drained along the way. Uh, You might not even know that it happened. So just kind of illustrate what happened to me. Like, this is kind of the metaphor that I use. I think they string up (laughs) teachers of color and bleed us out for white audiences so that those white audience have um, an attempt at empathy to hopefully for them to be less racist, I think is the goal of some right. of the diversity trainings that I've been a part of. So myself, myself, what I did is I stepped out of all those spaces. Like if we're going to be doing sensitivity work, if we're doing diversity work, then I want separate spaces for BIPOC staff and white staff because we're going to have two different conversations. You don't need to convince BIPOC staff that racism exists, you know, and having to be in a space where people are doubting that racism is even real is detrimental, harmful to BIPOC educators. So for me to survive this long, I stepped out of those spaces. I'm not in them. Um, I recently have started to come back into them because we have a new we have young teachers coming back in with different with you know different values and systems from kind of the old guard that I everybody was pretty old when I first started teaching I was 24 20 years ago just turned 44 yesterday Um, (laughs) uh, yeah and everybody was you know 20 25 years in the game mostly in my building and so they're not you know they weren't really trying to change or hear I mean when I came into South Eugene in 2004 they were still saying things like minorities and I was like, you mean students of color? And they're like, I don't think you can say that, Gregory. <laughs> right. All right. right. So um, they will they will bleed you out. They will. Ble- and the younger you are and the more passion you have around social justice or transformative teaching or 
are opening mindsets or just unpacking invisible curriculum or dismantling racism or taking on white supremacy head on. The more you have that in you, the more I feel like, at least I can speak in my district, the more they will kind of just bleed you out for white audiences. And sometimes those white audience members change and sometimes they don't. But the place that we get into that's really uncomfortable that I don't think white administrators really understand when they put you in those positions is afterwards. Like after that meeting that we did on microaggressions, I don't need you to come tell me you're sorry. Actually, actually get away from me. Yeah, every (laughs) single time, because every single time you come to my classroom and say you're sorry, that's a microaggression. I That's a microaggression. You didn't understand it. <laughs> like you're missing the point. Oh, I guess, Gregory, I, I've been microaggressing you for the last 10 years. Like you're doing it now. Like get yeah. away from me. Yeah. Like it's not our job to unpack racism for white educators. You know, that's not our job. That's not what we're hired to do. That's not what we're being paid to do. So if that's the work that they want us to do, then they need to pay us for it. You know, yeah. but to yeah. have us be the example in the room for diversity training is, is damaging. Well, and I will, you know, I know that I'm just hosting, but I'll, I'll chime in on this. I think it is, it's, you know, it's harmful to the existence of BIPOC educators for them to be required to sit in the same equity PDs as the, all the, the white educators are, um, East, you know, European educators that they have in the building. I'm trying to think of the best way, politically, political correct way to say this. Yeah. However, um, when I have to ask, answer questions on, about my culture as if I'm the spokesperson. Yeah. You know, that's harmful. That's harmful. Uh, and one thing, you know, you mentioned out there about the, that community and, you know, that coming together. And that, you know, you stepped out of the spaces, but now you're stepping back into them because there's more young, younger folks there. And really, truth be told, we have a lot more BIPOC educators at my building now. Like I was hired almost, you know, to kind of color up my school. There was four teachers of color all hired at once. And we doubled the number of teachers of color. So there went from four to eight. And then for a while, there's only five of us. And this is a staff of 60 or 70. And now we're now we're up there. I don't want to say the wrong number because somebody's going to do the math and be like, "You forgot about me." But like, we got a dozen plus now, and you know, and I want to, you know, I want to, you know, I want to help people out. You know, tell them what I've learned, and you know, and like, hey, this is, you know, this is kind of how I've navigated it. You know, these are my passions. These are the works that I do. So I want to, you know, twenty years deep. You know, I kind of want to start to be in that mentor teacher role, and, and that's a new space for me to want to be in, and really kind of working with Equity Sparks has kind of helped me kind of come back into this field um, of just organizing and supporting and mentoring. Because right, I was, yeah. we were, you know, like everybody else, we were just surviving. Right, <laughs> yeah. I want to thrive. I want to thrive, and we're getting there. Well, and I can tell you 100% that, you know, as a young educator, this is year four license for me, but you're 100% are a mentor. Uh, and someone that I look up, and that's why you know I reach out, to ask you questions, and I also reach out to get you on this, this on the show. So, moving forward, I got another question for you because we you know it's staying on that topic. We talked a lot about the the power of affinity spaces, the power of finding a community, um, and then just you know the survival of BIPOC multicultural educators. And um, so, to all my admin out there, all my school my school leaders. 
and uh, caretakers or, you know, the people that really do do the lifting for the school leadership. What recommendations or suggestions do you have to those individuals who are wishing to retain or recruit educators of color? Because it sounds like your school is, you know, or your building is doing quite well, to be honest with you. Our district, 4J School District, just recently over the last couple of years started doing uh, BIPOC educator nights. And I think it's all staff members, uh, licensed, admin, classified, like the whole gamut where they're providing food. And like, I know that sounds so small, but like breaking bread, like it's part of everybody's culture for forever. So like if you want to build community, then there has to be food present, you know, and like food people want to eat, you know, like tater tots and chicken strips and like ham, dry ham sandwiches is cool and all, but like you got to feed people. And I mean that on both levels, like you got to feed people like, you know, like not just their body, but also like their mind and like what's going to feed people's mind is being around like minds. So if you want people to come after school to a meeting, like number one, don't have that on campus. You know, we all know that these buildings are repressive, you know, historical bastions of white supremacy. That's why our families of color don't like coming in them. You know, we know what these buildings represent, you know. Yeah. So, like, we're not going to meet with the BIPOC folks in the building. We're going to go off campus. We're going to have food and get out of the way. Right. Stop micromanaging. Stop micromanaging. Get out of the way. We know how to do it better. We've been we've been building community as oppressed people and thriving for hundreds of years in this country. We know how to do it better. So let's kind of get out. Give us space. Give us the money, and then get out of the way, and we'll blow you away. I mean, it's really yeah. simple, you know. So and like, yes, everybody wants to be a fly on the wall, but sometimes you don't get to be. You know, sometimes you just have faith and trust. And the people that you hired and the commitments that you made. And then for them, then you're practicing what you preach. Right. Administrator out there, be really careful with that word restorative. Be incredibly careful with that word restorative. I don't like restorative practices in education. I, I mean, I went to school here in Eugene. I'm teaching in the same district I grew up in. And uh, ain't nobody restored anything with me. Right. I was locked. I was locked in closets. I still. I've worked with some of the administrators. Actually, that's in school suspended me, locked me in rooms by myself for eight hours. Could you imagine that? Locking a, a ten no, I mean, closet for ten hours. So, until those teachers want to come and those principals want to come to me and make things right with me, I just don't feel like we're restoring a lot. You know what we're doing as we're teaching white educators how to be more flexible with their biases is what actually what we're doing. Hey man, you know, it's uh, not a lot of people know this and I'll share it. I, I, I graduated from David Douglas high school, 2013. It's my 10 year anniversary. And, uh, when I got my, when I became a teacher in the district, only one teacher, the one, the only Chris Kavanaugh, shout out to you. Yeah. Amazing, amazing man, but he was the only person that congratulated me. And wow. you know, um, it was crazy to think about that. And then, you know, even I tried to student teach at the high school. They, they I don't know, they say they didn't get the notification. I think they got it. You know how it is. Yeah. But I want to forget that, put that to the yeah. curve. That's yeah. relevant, but it's, it's still very relevant because 
it's almost as if, you know, we these affinity spaces, because we have affinity groups in David Douglas School District. Yeah. However, we don't meet often. And it's almost because the people that are leading them overcomplicate things. Or they think about, you know, they have to have all these plans for that meeting. But from what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like it could be very simple. And it goes that's, you know, having it simple, but mindful of the things that are the necessities can take it a long way. Yeah, I might, this might come across a little, little something, but like, I think elders, we have a lot of wisdom. And then sometimes when we finally get all the kids together, we finally get all the BIPOC kids together, we really want to just unload the wisdom on them. And there's four or five of us, you know, in the room and we're taking turns, you know, oh, you know, no, they need to know this. No, they need to know that. And I think sometimes I've been in, in those spaces where we don't give kids the opportunity to do what I think is most valuable to them, and that's network with each other. Like I've been to, you know, um, leadership conferences, and I've been in, in affinity spaces, and, and, and I'm just like, when do the kids get to not be structured? When do the kids get to, like, share each other on social media? When do Because at the end of the day, that's who they're going to call. When shit hits the fan... And they're not calling us, they call on each other. So like if we got all the black kids from the state of Oregon getting together at a college campus, can we let them share each other's contacts? Can I mean the U of O has a class for the athletes to build their brand. Free. Right. All U of O athletes to build their brand. Like, why are we not doing that for our kids? Like they yeah. need to build their brand. They need I mean, we I know some of us are individually, but I just mean in these spaces, I just feel like we want to impart so much knowledge and yeah, we got tons of it and yeah, the kids need to hear it, but we also need to reserve time for them to be with each other without us micromanaging it, making it a get to know you game. And I mean, obviously do that stuff in the beginning to build it, but once they're open and they're flowing, get out the way, get out the right. way and let them go. But yeah, no, let them, yeah, let them do their own thing. And, I, you know, this is a different question for you, but it sounds, you know, you're talking 100% about white supremacy culture. Yeah. And, you know, that, that, that structuredness, that, that, yes. that need to control the classroom. Um, how, you know, just to real quick, put us, make us a fly in, in your classroom. Yeah. What, what does a typical day look in your classroom? Is it, you know, is it very structured or can it be a little bit of chaotic, but it's, you know, beautiful chaos where there's a lot of learning taking place? Uh, I, my, I, you know, we teach culinary, but we teach culture, you know, explicitly. We're going to talk about, uh, immigration, right? That's because like, you know, I, I say anecdotally, I can't teach you how to make tacos if you don't think Mexicans should be in America, you know, like I just can't do that. And so people are like, why do you talk about race in your class and culture? I'm like, cause it's food. (laughs) Yeah. Food is like where did this food come from who brought it to us are we honoring them are are we are we are we being grateful because my whole thing is like we got to be grateful to our skilled laborers you know cooks you know we got to give love to them you know as you know we're in cities now we got wealth and people want cheap meals you know what does that mean like when you're like oh i want to eat some chinese food and i want it to be authentic but not too expensive so you what? You want people working for below minimum wages? You want some yeah. kid that spent thirty years of his life mastering his craft to make twenty five thousand dollars a year, so you can save ten bucks on the bill? Like, 
that when you bring up white supremacy, that's white supremacy culture is that the world is our oyster to feast on and we don't really have to pay people what they're worth. So why is it that we think that Latin food and Chinese food should be cheap? You know, what does that say about how we feel about those people? You know, if we don't value your food, you know, we probably don't value you either. And so people unbeknownst to themselves every day, you know, participate in white supremacy culture, just the normalizing of the American value system that comes from the colonizers. So those are the kind of conversations or kind of the things that I talk about, you know, as an intro to, you know, the Latinx, you know, cooking unit that we're about to go on, you know, yeah. and we try to unpack words like authenticity, even actually wanting authentic food is kind of white supremacy culture. Like, why do you feel like you deserve to have it? Like, why do you feel like you should have inside access into these people's lives, homes, family, and community to eat from their tables, you know? You know, only <laughs> only people that are going to understand that last little bit that you just said are yeah. going to be BIPOC members. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Um, and I mean that in the best way possible. Um, but one thing I just want to, you know, I want everyone to know um, – it, what, what, you know, what Gregory's doing when he's asking those questions and the, where he teaches huge, especially for equity work and, you know, you know, lowering the achievement gaps and behavior gaps across our state for BIPOC students. Um, you're 100 percent modeling that fear to open conflict, willing to have a difficult, hard conversation if it's going to mean to the greater good or the big, the greater learning of the, the classroom. And I just love that. I acknowledge you for that. Thank you. Um, before we wrap things up, my I just want to yeah. Before we wrap things up, my last thing I want to ask you is: there anything that you have left that you want to share with us? Any last little things, or just you know, let us know what's going on with your life? Whoa, that's a lot. That's so much. It's kind of like it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a <laughs> mic drop. So don't. don't uh, it. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, to the folks listening, you know, like cherish love and honor the people around you um tip out well <laughs> at your restaurants <laughs> uh, uh yeah and just you know in general you know i think we can get bogged down into the minutia uh in academia and like the overall goal is just to teach critical thinking i mean that's the overarching goal you know if you create a critical thinking mind, then, you know, it's going to fly into the world, you know, fast, you know, and hard and rise to the top. So there's so many different ways to get to critical thinking and so many different venues. And I just feel like there's a lot of uh, missed opportunities for people to like, all right, let's slow down. Yeah. These are the standards. Yeah. This is what I'm teaching, but let's like slow down on these teachable moments, you know? And I think that's how you can authenticate and like value students' lives and their input, you know? And just, you know, try to, like, why do you think the way that you, like, I have all my students raise their hand. I'm just like, how many of you know that the cell phone, you know, is sending subliminal programs and programming you? And every single student raises the hand. I'm like, well, how many of you have went on the internet to learn that technology of how that works so that you know that you're not being programmed? All the hands go down. And that's kind of, that's what I think as an educator I'm trying to do. I'm trying to teach the kids how they're being programmed so that they can understand you know, how to think for themselves. So that's kind of it. 
it's bringing it full circle. You know, you yeah. you started the show saying that you know you don't really you think you're teaching your growing minds, and then you ended it talking about the importance of critical thinking, and um, that's you know those are the two essential skills in order to be truly a liberated individual in this world that we live in. And do the socials. I know you're tired. I know we got kids. We got to get our kids to sports. We got to cook the dinners. We got to grind, grind, grind. But like carve out the time for self, you know, uh, to go hang out with some like-minded individuals, you know, do your best. If it's once a month, it's once a month, you know, if it's once a year, it's once a year. But like, you know, that it's special. Make the time for that. <laughs> Amen. Well, hey, man, thank you for being here today. That was great. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit grow.oregonad.org.